The wily rogue stealths ahead of the party and finds a sleeping bugbear next to a massive vault door. She should turn back and tell the others, but she doesn't. She sneaks up to discover more. Then she craps out on her stealth roll. The bugbear wakes up and lunges for her on instinct. Where'd you come from? It asks. Wait, does my character hear this? Asks the player of the cleric, a hundred feet back in the dungeon. Screen time in any game is precious and can be a point of contention. Many tropes and conventions of stories require characters to act alone at times. Maintaining the balance of screen time among all the players is one of the most important juggling acts a GM performs, and it played into the latest adventure for our group. This is Anatomy of a Campaign. This episode is broken into three parts. First, I'd like to talk about the preparations I made for the party's time in the city of Medier. This is a highly unstructured part of the game where they can do pretty much whatever they want, and it'll be up to me to be prepared to improvise. Second will be a recap of how that session went and one of the key challenges which, based on the opening, you might have guessed. And third will be a quick discussion about preparations for the next session continuing their adventures in the city. Many sessions ago, I discussed city creation. I discussed it back then because that's where I thought we would be going next. While I was not wrong exactly, the party did stick around in Red Road and fought an army of uber ghouls, so it's been quite some time. This diversion has upped the stakes for what downtime in Medier needs to accomplish for the campaign. They need to let their hair down and have some fun, but I also need to progress things along and engage them to bring the story back from what I consider to be a bit of a campaign slump. The primary party goal is to research the location of the next temple or place of power. The clue is that Medier is a very old city and could have records of the time before the Empire, when these places of power held great prominence. This is all well and good, but perhaps boring, so I am trying to spice it up a bit via NPCs. More on that later. The secondary goal is to cut loose, resupply, bask in the glory that they have earned. The DM tools I used ahead of the session are simple. A good map to help guide the players. A list of names. Always, always the list of names, in this case of both places and people. A solid list of rumors they might discover including true, false, and things in between, and a small handful of interesting diversions. The city map notes the districts as well as key points of interest. The players also know there is an undercity, and that all manner of diversion can be found in the dark ways beneath the rain-swept streets. I asked the players ahead of time, A, what was their attitude in the city, and B, what were the must-haves, and what were the nice-to-haves? From this list, I knew we would be getting to the zombie fighting pits. Another player was looking to have a fling, and two of the PCs were prioritizing research. The centerpiece was going to be the pits. I specifically noted key NPCs and that the fighter Bren was my main focus for this. I suspected he might want to actually fight in the pits, but at the least he would want to gamble. My backup plan was to have the fling NPC be a pit fighter, with the goal of ensuring there was some emotional investment in the fighting. I came up with a halfling fight promoter named Jonas Pepperidge and decided on a sharp, salesy personality. And I even worked on his accent in the shower and everything. I figured the research would be a function of either the local theater, which has a big library, or the Thieves' Guild. To that end, I worked up personalities at the Orpheum Logos, a stage master, a librarian, a beautiful starlet, and the ancient elven bard who runs the place. 
These are all just lines in my notebook, information for me to riff off of in the moment. If I had to actually draw out the Orpheum or stat up the NPCs, this would be a ridiculous time-consuming effort and largely wasted. The less I say about the Thieves' Guild, the better for now, but suffice it to say, it is a different guild than the one in Outpost 9. I knew I would start with mundane things and use them to make the world real. A blacksmith to fix their armor. But he needs extra time. With the threat of invasion, he and all the other tradesmen in town are working double time for the city as they prepare for their defenses. An inn, subverting the rat hole trope in most fantasy games. This one's for business folk and somewhat more like a modern hotel in how they service their patrons. So less spitting into the mugs and more enjoy your stay. Bandits, who might make a play to steal from the party should they find themselves in the seedier districts at night. And that's it. Yes, a part of me felt wildly underprepared, but the experienced part of me knew that to prepare any more would rob the players of what I really wanted to give them. Choice. Overall, things went spiritually as planned, though more than a few expected details did change. Firstly, Mike was unable to join the game, so Constantine needed to be sidelined. It was easy enough to say he was off in the city on his own, but when the party realized they needed the gemstones and their loot liquidated, it made more sense for Constantine to be off doing that via his connections. The next minor curveball was when Bruce clarified what his druid character Sativa needed from a flame. It was not about romantic distractions, but rather a means to remain unnoticed. She's something of a notorious and wanted pirate who did not want to be recognized. The flame really just morphed into a pulled-up cloak or explorations as a spider. This feeds into the theme of this episode, character screen time, so we'll come back to this. Bren and Jarrus both have damaged armor from way, way back when they fought the Black Puddings in the Using Temple, so they interacted with the blacksmith, who was also able to let them know how to attend the zombie fighting pits in the Undercity. Lastly, Voss went to the Orpheum Logos to see what she could find out about the temples. If I can take a pause here from the information dump and talk about how this is playing out in the game, I'm doing my best to move back and forth among the players, giving everyone a turn, but the reality is that certain engagements are more robust than others. Voss ends up getting a lot of solo screen time as she engages with the various characters and environments nested within the Orpheum. The truth is that this is a robust area within my headspace, and so there's a lot of cool stuff to engage with. Maybe that's not strictly fair, but it's honest. Next up is Brennan Jarris talking with the blacksmith. He's a bit of a rough character, honest and straight-talking. He gives them the background that his work for the war effort means it will take him two weeks to build Bren's armor. This interaction simply gives some color to the environment and establishes a friendly NPC resource for the players to use, or me to endanger at some future point. Sativa mostly tags along. I get the sense Bruce does not want to take screen time because that slows things down. He's not wrong, but it's something I was very conscious of. These unstructured scenarios work best with players who like to play out their characters, like actors. Conversely, combat scenarios favor players who like tactics and know how to squeeze everything out of the rules or their character build. I see a bit of a Sophie's choice here. Do you enforce group activities so everyone is present, or do you allow these mini solo moments? At the start of the podcast, I gave a quick example of the player who is trying to find a way to insert themselves into the action by asking if they notice or hear what's happening. If yes, 
they can proclaim, well, then I would do this, or I would go over there and ask this, etc. The folks who manage this dynamic best are the players on Critical Role. My guess is that they approach this the same as an improv class and have training to know when their character can add to a scene, or when they should back off and stay off-camera. We regular civilians have neither the training nor the motivation to do that well, unlike professional actor-streamers who are prioritizing the entertainment value for the audience, the rest of us have been looking forward to our D&D game for a week or more and don't want to sit on the bench and not get the play. So. Do you never have these solo moments and always have all the PCs in every scene? Or do you allow the solo moments and do your best to balance them, but know that sometimes folks are sitting the game out? The first option is a pipe dream, in my opinion. Even if you could minimize alone time and have most of the game cover only those moments when everyone is present, any non-combat encounter i.e. scenes not governed by initiative, will naturally favor certain characters. The talky characters, or players, will be dominant in social encounters. The knowledge character will be dominant during investigations. The character most connected to the scene will be dominant in any given moment. And honestly, most D&D parties have too many people to make some scenes work as a group activity. Ever had a party try to interrogate their one prisoner? Or all of them try to simultaneously negotiate with the king? It sometimes comes off okay, but mostly it ends up being awkward or just off. Groups are also where the skill check pylon occurs. Oh, I hate the pylon. Give me an arcana check. Can I roll two? We all roll. If you allow it, be prepared for the six intelligence fighter to know more about the arcane mysteries of the sacrificial demon pool than the wizard. For me, the best scenes are almost always with limited participants either because some are absent or merely observing. It gives the involved players the spotlight and allows them to sink their teeth into the scene. Imagine the fighter dueling with his longtime nemesis on the edge of the volcano. It's tense and dangerous and filled with drama. Then, just at the end, the wizard pops up and with a firebolt drops the bad guy. So the wizard got to play too, but the fighter was robbed of his moment. I'm in favor of giving folks their moment which means the burden is on me to give everyone their moment. This session was pretty good, but I wish I could have given Bruce more of the spotlight with Sativa. I had hoped to do that via the fling, but then when the fling wasn't really happening, I struggled to find a place to engage Sativa while not spinning the game and the storyline into another new quadrant. The main plotline developed as Voss opened up to the wizard librarian at the Orpheum. She wanted to help, and in the next session, the party is supposed to go back and meet with the elven bard Quintalion. He's the first elf the party has ever met and may have information that could help in locating these temples. A subplot developed as Bren looked to set up a pit fight with the current champion, a bugbear named Drood. But wait, what about the zombie fighting? The group gambled on that quite a bit, and Jarras is going to take part in the zombie slaughter, which is where it's people versus zombies rather than zombie versus zombie. But as it turns out, the zombies were little more than window dressing. The challenge of Drood and the personality of Jonas Pepperidge overshadowed the poor zombies. The last development came as the party returned to their inn just before dawn. A letter from Constantine saying that if they are receiving this letter... Chances are he's in trouble and in need of rescue. To find him, they need to find the jeweler named Lorraine. That was my cliffhanger ending, setting up Mike's return in the next session as Constantine. 
So Mike let me know he's not coming to the next session either. It's summer and we play on Saturday nights. Schedules can be difficult. I have a number of immediate threads I'm considering as I plan out what goes down next. But before I do that, let me say that I thoroughly enjoyed the last session. I felt good about my moments of improvisation. I'd not expected Voss to be the one to go to the Orpheum. Seemed to make more sense that the bard would go there. It's a subtle thing, but the wizard, Miss Stringfarrow, served a different purpose with Voss as the interface. She was far more helpful than I intended. She runs a wizarding school alongside the theater and immediately sees Voss for what she is, a sorcerer and a warlock. She's not at all judgmental about it, and I described how the other students were very jealous of Voss's positive interactions with their teacher. I often judge these things by how much the player seems to be getting into the moment, and I thought Taylor thoroughly enjoyed her interactions in the theater in Miss Stringfarrow. The library was interesting, and I'm looking forward to direct interaction with the elven bard Quintalian, who I am also pleased to say I've set up an air of mystery around. Because elves are incredibly rare, I was able to cast him as an almost mystical creature. Looking forward to paying that off. Jonas Pepperidge, the halfling pit-fighting master, and his helpers were also a ton of fun to play. I was pleased with how the setting of the Undercity, the subterfuge to get there, and the boisterous personality of Jonas combined to achieve the feel I was looking for. I hope it telegraphed. This place is safe, but it has a dark edge, and maybe a step into the shadows beyond would be dangerous. But it's cool to kick back and enjoy some debauchery in this place. I've talked about not having enough screen time for Sativa, so that will be something I remedy next session, I hope. The other pitfall I need to avoid is allowing the Constantine mystery to turn into a big adventure. The overarching goal is to have relatively benign downtime, not turn the pressure cooker back on. So that will turn into something fairly simple. Though to be honest, I'm not sure how I achieve that with Mike not being in the session. The party has three things calling for their attention coming out of this session. Number one, find Constantine via the lead of the jeweler Lorraine. Number two, go back and meet with Miss Stringfarrow and Quintalian to learn about the temples. And number three, Bran is working up to fighting the bugbear Drood in the pits. Constantine's absence is connected to two new factions in the game. My plan is to downplay them. I don't want the game to become overshadowed by yet more plots. But essentially, there is a thieves' guild in operation here that connects back to the Underdark and the Drow. Likely, I will pull back the Drow factoid and just leave it as a new thieves' guild. Second faction is a band of gnomes who call themselves Spud Harvest. They're a rock band who also specialize in fencing high-end items like gems. Among the party's set of gems are two special rubies, and Constantine needed to go answer some questions about them, thus his absence. The nature of these rubies will also be something I withhold until a later time. Again, don't want to muddy the waters. Not sure how the players will take this, but the fact that Mike is absent will likely encourage them to accept what the gnomes say at face value, perhaps some insight checks. I'm hoping they make friends with the gnomes so I can have them play their death metal-like music later on in the Undercity. Vias but harvest bitches, hear sound in despair. I have a long-standing tradition of making gnomes have German accents, and also making them a little nuts. The meeting with the wizard and the elf is an opportunity for the party to gain extra information. The elves in this world have mostly left for the Feywild. They know the world is dying and believe it cannot be saved. Miss Stringfarrow wants to help and in fact can become something of a mentor for the characters. She will certainly help them find the places of power. 
Quintalian, on the other hand, does not want to offer any false hope. I'm not sure how he will respond to the players and they to him. He will be tangentially helpful, but I don't see him responding well to the mercenary angle they often portray. What he will know is Jarrus's mother. He will recognize Jarrus's hand axes, which are of elven make. He will know the lore surrounding the shield of Iona, Bren's personal quest item. I do not think, though, that they will engage with him in a way that helps or gains access to this information. In some ways, he's like a random secret room in a dungeon. This information he has is not necessary for the game to progress, but if they're canny enough to unlock it, it will be a boon to their efforts. Then there is the pit fight for Bren. Jonas will want to build interest and insist Bren fight two lesser opponents to generate interest in a matchup between himself and the bugbear champion Drood. Jarrah seems to be planning to use spellcraft to tilt the odds against Drood. He got away with it once when they were observing him earlier, but we'll see how he fares in the future. If he rolls poorly, he could get into quite a bit of trouble. How then to ensure I get sativa in the mix of things? My plan is to create an extra level of intrigue, either in the Orpheum or the pit fights. Sativa is often shifted into a small spider or rodent to spy on things. I'm planning on introducing another creature doing something similar. The plan is to make it a slow burn, not make it 100% obvious at first. Sort of questionable. Doesn't that rat seem to be acting a little odd? Follow it, see what it's doing craft a mystery that only Sativa can unravel from the POV of a tiny creature, like the world inside the walls is more robust than you think. The mystery will hopefully only begin the next session and will play out over a longer time as they spend the next couple of weeks in Medier. Non-standard sessions with minimal to no combat, which are organized around interactions and unpressured exploration, can be extremely rewarding. They call upon a ton of improvisational skills, which I personally enjoy as a DM. Sometimes running a dungeon can be a little paint-by-the-numbers. Something like this is a bit more freestyle, and it's the best way to let the players express their characters. As I improvise and react to the players, I just have to be careful not to spin us off into something counter to my goals as a storyteller. If the players do that, it's okay, but I am committed to letting them enjoy their little vacation before I start trying to kill them again. This has been Anatomy of a Campaign. Follow me on Twitter at AnatomyCamp or on Reddit at r slash anatomyofacampaign. Thank you for listening.